0: So the core idea of this series is that sometimes it's at the lowest point in your life that your faith can be renewed, and we want to take time in this series to try and understand why that is the case. We're very early still in the book of Joel. I think many of us are still recalibrating a little bit to the genre of the book. It is very different To much of what we read. I think most of what we do and we sing and we say here is is rather upbeat, and it should be, because we have good news. But life is not always good, is it? So if you're in a crisis right now, you should be asking, does my church have anything for me? Do I have to pretend to be happy to belong here? Or is there... A way somehow for me to worship even at my lowest point. The book of Joel says 100% yes. We call this genre lament. And as we saw in week one, all lament is, is a sort of elaborate, biblical, lengthy, heartfelt complaint to God. It does not have to be fair or balanced or even realistic when you lament. It does have to be honest. You have to tell God how you really feel. But it doesn't have to be coherent or even necessarily true. Proportionately, a lament is is far more downbeat than up. It is front-loaded with grievance. You maybe spend half of your worship in a lament just complaining about things. So these first few weeks, the book of Joel, they're a lot more negative than normal. Uh, not very positive, not very encouraging. We're going to have to dig more deeply if we're going to find any good news at all in the opening chapters of Joel. And before we do, I want to spend some time this morning sharing a concept with you that I I hope is going to help us to do that. So bear with me. If you're a fan of movies, you're going to be familiar with the concept of the film score. So, not the soundtrack with the the rock music and the pop songs, but the the sort of orchestral uh, music in the background, the score. And that the point of it is to draw you in. The idea of this sort of emotional music is to enhance your experience of the movie, and it will give you a sense of affiliation with the characters or, or some aspect of the plot. And uh, often you'll find in in epic movies, specific characters have their own refrains within the score. The the film score also functions as a kind of musical recap of the plot. It's a long film and you're thinking, where am I? Uh, The score will will help you find your place. It can even prepare you for a thing that's about to take place on the screen. So really simple example for us, Jaws. When you hear, da-dum, what do you think is going to appear on the screen? Right, we know this, don't we? More complex example, but not much more. Star Wars. You have Darth Vader's theme, and every time you hear it play, you're meant to be afraid. That's the point of that refrain or that tune. But uh, the longer versions of it, the extended versions of the Vader theme actually have a slightly more calamitous flavor to them. You meant, as well as being afraid, to view him as a tragic figure and even to sort of question, what could it be that has brought this character to this point in his existence? What happened to make him this way? Now, many view science fiction as the sort of development of the Western genre of movies. And I confess I am now fully using a very weird idea to explain a very weird book of the Bible. And that might be just weirdness times weirdness, and we all know what that is. It's weird. But bear with me. Well, church. Yeah. <laughs> but bear with me. There's this amazing scene in the movie For a Few Dollars More. And in that movie, Lee Van Cleef's character tells how his sister, on her wedding night, received a gift from her groom, and it was a pair of matching musical pocket watches uh, with little pictures of each other inside. And as they opened them up together to celebrate, a bandit comes in and he kills the groom, takes advantage of the bride, and then she takes her own life. And at this point in the movie, it feels like Ennio Morricone, who composed the score, just instructed the orchestra to to pick up furniture and drag it across their instruments as much as they could. It's just a, a swirling, discordant sound on the score. And then through the strains of the violins comes the sound of the pocket watch, as he actually incorporates the music from the watch into the music for the movie on the score. Many, many points then in the movie you hear within the orchestral piece, this chiming of the watch, and every single time the refrain is designed to remind you of the tragedy, and it's designed to explain the motive of Van Cleef's character for revenge, and I think in a, in a really kind of heavy-handed way, it even literally tells you that time is ticking down to a sort of showdown, that when the music stops, at the culmination of the film, judgment comes. Morricone, the composer, recapitulates this in different movies. And uh, they said that I had to be a bit more uh, with it for the kids, and so I've brought here a very contemporary recording of the actual film here on vinyl, just to prove how cool I am. And uh, different directors in different movies, completely different things, have actually even picked up on this pocket watch. Tarantino does this to great effect, uh, almost going into the depths of our subconscious. to to tell us, oh, I remember something about this. It's tragedy, it's revenge, this refrain. What we need to know is that the Bible does the very same thing, which of course it does, right? The Bible is the original epic. It is the ultimate story, true story, upon which all other movies and books, they merely riff. So if you understand this concept, Uh, of the film score, and how it reminds you of things and prepares you for things, and you understand that the Bible uses a similar device with writing, you're going to get a lot more out of the Book of Joel. I'm indebted to Ben for reminding me of this idea on the podcast, and we're both indebted to Tim Mackey from the Bible Project and the other bloke, uh, whatever his name is, for coming up with this. We're just running with an idea, but uh, we're doing a Tarantino to a Morricone, if you like, but... uh, There are many, many musical refrains in the Bible. Uh, For example, the garden, the garden theme. Uh, Plenty, abundance, fruit, the vine. That is Eden's theme. Whenever you hear about these things, whenever you hear about abundance, you're meant to to think about Genesis chapter 2 and the garden before the fall of blessing, of proximity to God, of the good days, You will find a land flowing with milk and honey. That's Eden's tune. On the night that he was betrayed at supper with his friends, Jesus took bread and broke it and gave you thanks. And in the same way, after supper, taking the cup of wine, he said, This is my blood which is shed for you. Drink this as often as you meet in remembrance of me. Is Eden's tune? It's plenty, it's proximity to God. You feel your hairs go up in the back of your neck when you hear those words like uh, Luke and Leia's theme from Star Wars. It's haunting, this tune. And then having conquered the grave, the risen Lord Jesus Christ meets his disciples on the beach. And what does he do? He cooks them a meal. It is Eden's tune. On the road to Emmaus, what do the disciples say? Having received yet another meal from Christ, did not our hearts burn within us as Eden's tune was playing in the background. We play Eden's tune every single week in church, and we'll do it again in a few moments' time, and you are welcome to receive as it plays. But you need to know crisis has a tune as well, famine has a tune, drought, plague. That is Egypt's theme. And in Joel, as this swarm of locusts comes through and devours everything in its path, the green shoots, the grass, the fruit of the trees, even the bark off the trees themselves, as the swarm of pestilence sweeps through the land, devouring everything in its path, all they could think about was Egypt. Egypt's tune was playing every bit as much as Dum dum makes you think shark, locusts make them think Egypt. Egypt is described in Exodus ten fifteen. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field, through all the land of Egypt. Egypt was a disaster. Egypt was a time of distance from God, of exhaustion. And what did they do back then? What did they do back in Egypt? Some dug their heels in and tried to save themselves. Others, at the lowest point, with nothing else available to them, cried out for a rescue from the Lord. So what I suggest to us is this, with Joel. It's a bit different to what we normally do. We need to understand superficial level, at the very least, the theme. Crisis precedes renewal for the people of God. We know that's the theme because we wrote it on the front of the bulletin, so it must be true. The genre, we need to understand what it is. It's a lament. And the film score, extra credit if you can figure this one out, but there are bigger parts of God's story echoing through the book of Joel and playing in the background. And You can, you can read Joel, if you like, in the same way that you could watch a movie on mute, with the subtitles on, and genuinely claim that you saw it. But what I'm inviting you to do instead is to turn up the volume and have a kind of immersive experience of Joel. Let's do that now as we turn to chapter 1, verse 15. Joel 1, 15. Alas. Now, I could actually do a whole sermon on just the word alas. Uh, I would really like to one day. In fact, in, in Hebrew, it's not even a word. It is more like an exasperated noise. Have you noticed that when you have a really emotional experience of some kind, often the first thing to come out of your mouth isn't a, a lucid explanation of your feelings, it's more like a noise, right? Good thing, hey, bad thing, ugh. Alas, is, is, is like a sort of, "uh ugh, kind of a sound. I once watched a rugby match in a pub. This was England versus France in an English pub. Sitting at the front, right at the very front, underneath the screen, all alone, was a a man with a beret on his head, Breton shirt, and his legs crossed in a rather unfeasibly European way, if you ask me right underneath the, the screen. And every time something bad happened, from his perspective, he would just throw up his hands in the air and let out a noise, like this. He would go, <laughs> at the screen. And uh, this gallic gesticulation endeared him greatly to the crowd. <laughs> I don't think he bought a drink all night. This is the fundamental difference between rugby and football. If this were soccer had been beaten up. In, in rugby, he becomes a sort of folk hero of the pub. Why? How can a single Frenchman at an England France game survive an afternoon in the pub? And not just survive, but thrive. I'll tell you why. <laughs> this crazy gesture drew us in. Like everyone I know that was there that day still does this thing whenever anything bad happens in their life. Alas is that. It is the noise that comes out when words will not suffice. And the great thing about alas is no one needs a translator to understand what it means. It's rather obvious, is it not? This is the Bible. So I've got a question for those of you that think emotional worship is just a bit too much in church. That, uh, for those of you that think that being distraught or frustrated with God or exasperated with God or irritated or disappointed with God, for those of you that think that's a bit too much, if you can scream at a team in a bar when it's a game, why can't you scream at the Lord in your church when it's a matter of life and death? What's wrong with you? A lament is a heartfelt cry. It comes up from out of the guts. It's just a noise. Not a coherent, finessed speech. A lament is, is a raspberry to the air. And it is then followed, often by profound theological points. Alas for the day. For the day of the Lord is near. What day? What's he talking about? Judgment day, he means. The end of the world. The time when Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. And we shall stand before him on that day, either to be welcomed or to be told, Depart from me, you evildoer. I never knew you. Joel says, this crisis is so bad. It feels like the end of the world. Maybe it is the end of the world, Joel says, alas. And if it is not the end of the world, clue, it is not the end of the world, because it was written a really long time ago and we're still here. But if it's not the end of the world, it's merely a pre-echo of it, then what Joel is doing in this very moment is laying down a new theme, a new part of the soundtrack for us to use at later points. Indeed, even at the very end of all things, we could play this bit. It's an end-time tune that Joel is playing here. It's loaded with grief and exasperation and confusion, perplexity, grievance. Let's hear it. Verse 16, is not the food cut off before our eyes? We are beginning to starve. Joy and gladness in the house of our God. The crisis of food cascades into a crisis of worship. Verse 17, the seed shrivels under the clods. Very difficult Hebrew. Is it a lump of earth? Is it a shovel? I don't know what the word really means, but this is what the concept means. We planted a seed, and it was weeks ago, and there's no green shoots, so we're going to dig it up and see what's going on with this seed, and when we dig it up, it's still there, and it is dead. There's no hope. That was our last seed, and it has produced nothing. The storehouses are desolate. The granaries, I've noticed that uh, every single American pronounces this granaries. I didn't know you did that, but uh, there you go. The granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up. Not only have we consumed all of our reserves, but even the buildings we built to house them, empty, are now in decay and beginning to dilapidate. We placed all our faith in these stores, all these backup plans, these reserves, these investments, all these good fruits from the good old days, and now they've run out, and now we've got nothing that we've achieved in our own strength. We have nothing left. It has all gone to waste. Verse 18, how the beast's grown. Frequently, a crisis for people will become a crisis for creation as well. The herds of cattle are perplexed because there's no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. The thing about sheep is that they can eat shorter grass than a cow can. And when that grass has run out, a sheep can climb a mountain, which a cow can't do. And so even the sheep who've got short grass and mountains to explore have got nothing to eat. Verse 20, even the beasts of the field, pant, wild beasts suffer, the critters have got nothing to eat. Verse 19, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness and flame has burned all the trees of the field. As Ben said last week, there's likely some crazy weather patterns here. Maybe flood and then drought and then flood again and then locusts and then famine as these crises cascade And with the bark stripped off the trees and the vegetation dried up, everything in that garden is tinder dry and ready to go on fire. Now, if you were alive at the time of Joel, and you've been immersed in the story of God's people, you don't have all of this rubbish to distract you every few seconds. But really, you've just got one story and one form of entertainment. And every single night at table with your family, you have heard of Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and Judges. And the story of God is profoundly woven through every fiber of your being and your world. And you see a fire. You will say to yourself, I know this tune. I've heard the strains of this refrain before. Fire reminds me of the judgment of God. It was playing in Genesis 19 when fire consumed the evil cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Are we like them? Are we like those terrible places? In Deuteronomy, fire consumes a mountain just like ours. In Amos, it consumes dynasties. Will any of us here survive? In Zephaniah, it consumes the whole earth. Is this the end of the world? They say when they see this fire. And this might be why Joel says in verse 5, Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. And as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. Could this crisis in some way, be a judgment from God. That's what they ask. Does God hate me? Am I suffering because God just wants to wipe me off the face of the earth and there's no hope for me? And no sooner do you say a thing like that, in the safety of a vulnerable church, where you can say anything at all that is on your heart. And someone else will say, wait a minute. Fire reminds me of something else. Fire reminds me, not so much of judgment, but of the presence of God. Was it not through fire in a burning bush that God first appeared to Moses by name? And did he not speak as through the flames, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt and into the land? In Exodus, was it not by a pillar of fire at night that God led them out of slavery across the sea and towards the promised land? Was it not through a pot, a smoldering fire, passing through Abraham's camp at night, that God laid down a covenant promise to give them a verdant land that would never, ever end, an inviolable nation characterized by proximity and blessing from God. And that land, promised through fire, is now on fire and being destroyed are we hearing Egypt's tune played in Eden's land right now? And are we not hearing of both judgment from God and the presence of God at the same time, all at once through fire? This is like hearing dirdum, dirdum on the Death Star. And as a shark comes through in space, Darth Vader pulls out a pocket watch and it plays a tune. You're like, what is going on? This is a very, very strange cacophony of every theme we've ever heard in every movie we've ever seen. They might well be asking at this point, what is going on? This is weird, man. Could it be with this fire that God is not only behind this crisis, but also with them in it. I just offer that idea. Now, we cannot push the lament too far, right? I'm going to overread it. At this point in Joel, some of these ideas, they are not firm conclusions. They're merely ideas, Thoughts and questions, maybe, maybe glimmers of hope at the very most. These are half processed thoughts, almost buried by grief at this point of the lament. But that's the point. That's the point of it. The the genre is designed to get it out there. And then once we've got it out, then we will sort it out. Only once all of these ideas and thoughts and feelings and griefs are out can we then finally bring the truth of Scripture to bear upon it in any way that actually helps? It is through being really honest about grief and and fear and and doubt that at the last we'll actually be able to find hope. A sort of repressed Christianity with a smile plastered on is going to be like coming to church on mute with the subtitles at the very, very best. It's going to take us weeks and weeks to get to the point in in Joel where the good news is really, really clear. But we know how the story ends, don't we? We know that Jesus is the personification of Eden's tune. He's the true Israel. He is the true vine. We know that's him. And yet we also know that Jesus Christ groans under Egypt's curse. We know that he's the judge, but we know he's with us in the fire. We know that Jesus, the judge, is judged on our behalf. We know that in Christ, as the tune of death is played, it's overwhelmed with a victory song of life. Only in Christ, actually, are all of these crazy, disparate threads of every facet of theology and doctrine finally woven together in any way that actually makes sense. Only in Christ will any of this click, and it will be resolved in a final scene. They're not there yet in Joel. It's quite possible neither are we. But this part of the lament concludes in the way that I commend to you. It's a sort of a cry from a place of confusion and woe. It says, verse 19, To you, O Lord, I call from the very depths of crisis and woe, when I've got nothing left, when every effort of my own has come to naught and been frustrated and it feels like there is no hope left, to you, O Lord, I call. Scripture promises this. All who call upon the name of the Lord, We'll be saved. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it just feels like we're, we're only just starting to get ready to read Joel. And you call us to approach you in a way that is, is deeper and more real. You endlessly call us deeper still. So Father, would you help us perhaps through these concepts, certainly through your word, to be a people that is open and vulnerable about how we feel and that is a a place of safety to express these thoughts. And as we do, Lord, would you continually bring Scripture to bear upon our lives and enrich our reading of it through these wonderful themes of death redeemed, of fire extinguished, of proximity, purification, of crisis and renewal. In Jesus' name, amen.